0: All right, time for the kids to come on up front over here and find somewhere to sit. Go ahead, make your way up, find somewhere to sit with us. Hey, guys, good to see everyone. All right. Now, if you were listening earlier, you know that we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper today. We're going to be continuing and talking about the Lord's Supper. Now, think with me. I have a few questions for you to think about with me this morning. So, first question, the Lord's Supper. We have another term that we use, another name that we call the Lord's Supper. Do you know what that is? What else do we call the Lord's Supper? Well, it was instituted at Passover. That's true. Yep, but we call it, what else do we call it? It's kind of a feast. Yep, it's a meal. It's a word that starts with a C, communion. Yeah, communion, right? So the Lord's Supper or communion are names, we, terms we use for the, that celebration, right? Now, when we take communion, there are two elements involved, two things that we use in communion. What are those two things? Do you know? The first one is... The bread, yep. And the other one is the cup, right? A cup of juice that we use, right? So the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes for us Jesus' body, right? And the, the cup, the juice in the cup symbolizes his blood that was shed for us, right? And so those are the elements that we use. Now, do you know where the Lord's Supper came from? When did it start? We kind of heard a little bit off uh, already with Passover. Where did it come from? Where did it start? Do you know? Maybe a little help? Do you know? Yeah, when Jesus was with his disciples, right? And it was at the Passover meal that we are that we heard, that the Passover meal, Jesus started this with his disciples, right? And now the church is to continue celebrating communion together. Now, when Jesus started this with his disciples, Pastor Jeremy talked about this earlier, he had a purpose for it. He told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me, right? And so Jesus knew how forgetful we can be. And so he gave us communion, partly to help us to remember him. So we are not to forget about Jesus, but always to remember him, right? Now, do you know the specific thing that we are supposed to remember about Jesus when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're to remember his death. We're to remember that Jesus died. We're supposed to remember that Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. We're supposed to remember that Jesus shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. And so the Lord's Supper is a time for us to be very thankful for Jesus and all that he did for us and to celebrate what he did for us by dying on the cross for our sin. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, as we'll read today, that in taking the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Jesus' death. So every time we celebrate communion, we together as a whole group are proclaiming, we're preaching the gospel. By our participating together as a church family, we are proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again and that his death and resurrection are sufficient to save us from all of our sin so that all of our sin can be gone and forgiven and that we can have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And so God gave us communion as a purposeful way for us to remember the gospel. So it's a time of thanksgiving and great rejoicing as we remember those truths. So thanks, everyone, for coming up. You can go back and continue listening as Pastor Jeremy comes and preaches.
1: All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are looking this morning at verses 23 to 26. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. We saw last week of uh, what a mess Again, the church there was, especially when they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, they were dividing, especially amongst those who had and those who did not have, so amongst the rich and the poor. And uh, so they're just like us. If there's something we can divide over, we'll divide over it. And so you had people going ahead of others, stuffing themselves, some getting drunk and others didn't have anything at all. Um. And so huge mess. I mean like big mess. I mean like parents gone for a week, coming home to the house being destroyed kind of mess. Big mess, big mess, big mess. And Paul's solution is verses 23 to 26, and the solution to this mega mess is very simple. It's very, very simple. I love this about the Bible. I love it about God. There's not a bunch of complex Steps and things that you got to do in the right order. It's not a bunch of mystical insight that only a few have. It's very simple. The night Jesus betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, gave it, giving thanks, said, same thing with the covenant. It's so simple. It's very simple. You see this throughout the Bible. You and I get into all kinds of difficulties and troubles, and God's solutions are often a verse long. They're very simple. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Just do that. Nothing else. Just do that. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Just simple. We read, we read big, thick books, self help, 100 steps. If you just do these 100 steps, your life will be perfect. And all of you read it and go, I can't do the first two. And God's solution is so simple. How do you solve the big problem at Corinth? Well, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Simple. You'd think Paul would have some huge, mega-important way to solve this problem. Now he just goes back to what Jesus did, and he just rehearses it for them again. He's already delivered it before. He's going to deliver it again. It's very simple. So may God give us faith to do that. Let's, uh, let's pray before we jump in. Father, give us understanding according to your word. Teach us your statutes, they're right, they're a delight, they're a help, and so God, when we go astray, turn us right back to what we have lost, which is your word. Pray for help now, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with this first half of verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Um. Christians are inherently conservative. Um, This is related somewhat to political conservatism. Conservatism is just keeping what is old. It's going back to what has been lost. It's standing firm on founding principles and truth. This is what Paul is doing. I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you. He, he's just going back to Christ and Christ's truth. It was delivered by Christ. Paul is reminding them again. And so sometimes we think that that's boring. Conservatives are the boring Party, progressives are the exciting, the new. I think it's exactly the opposite, to tell you the truth. There's nothing exciting and new about doing what everybody else is doing right now, currently. Like, getting a tattoo is not exciting because everybody gets tattoos. Getting your hair colored is not new, it's not trendy, it's not unique. Everybody gets their hair colored today. Conservatism is wild. Standing firm on what everybody else is running away from is exciting. You should try being pastors and elders in a church that's just trying to stand firm on what it is. It's really exciting. It creates all kinds of difficulties and controversies. It's fun, it's wild. It really is, isn't it, guys? You as elders, right? Just trying to stand firm in the midst of a torrent, torrential river, just trying to sweep you down, just stand there. It's really thrilling. I'm not, I'm not being tongue-in-cheek here. you think I'm, like, pulling your chains on I'm, I'm really not. It's all that Paul does here. Just, he goes right back to Jesus. What I receive from Jesus, just do that. Let's go back. And so we're, we're never going to be a trendy church. I don't have cool colored glasses. I wear a shirt and a tie. Right? We're, not, we're not trying to be the latest and greatest here. Because that's not what the Bible does. It doesn't do anything new. It just goes back to what is very, very old and good and right and solid. Because it's Jesus' words This is giving us not only the way to respond to difficulty, but the doctrine of the Bible. What is it? Well, they're, they're God's words. They're Christ's words. When I am preaching God's words, you are hearing the word of God. It is, it, is, it is as if Christ Himself is here proclaiming to you through me His words. I'm just delivering what Christ has said. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, I don't know here if Paul is saying that Christ himself came because he, he is the only apostle not there present for the Lord's Supper. If Christ himself came personally to Paul and delivered them, I don't know if that's so. Maybe, maybe not. But Paul is just pointing to the origin. And it's Christ. That's the nature of our church. That's the nature of Conservatism, and so Paul is here getting at our fundamental problem. What's your What's your problem? You ever say that to your kids? What's your problem? Maybe to your spouse. What's your problem? How does that go for you when you say that? It's your problem. You know what your problem is. You don't like authority. That's your problem. I can say that lovingly. Kids, your problem when you're fighting with your parents is that you don't like your parents' authority. You don't like it. Wives, do you know what your problem is when you're angry at your husband? You don't like his authority. You know what our problem is as believers? We despise Christ's authority. We want to try something new. We want to go it our own way. So, Paul just simply says, I received this from Jesus, I'm going to deliver it to you. He's the authority. So, Paul gets right to the heart of the issue here, of your and my issue. We really do despise authority. We won't wear masks. Because Governor Evers said to wear it. And Governor Evers is bad. And he doesn't know the science. He hasn't read the stuff about masks, but I have. And I'm not listening to him because I'm the authority, not him. Don't you love pastors who get right at the stuff that makes you most angry? You should listen to Governor Evers, shouldn't we? How are you doing with that? We despise authority. We hate it in every form and every way. And so Christians are conservative. We always go back to authority. We always go back to Jesus' words. Jesus said, baptize them in the triune name and teach them to observe, to obey everything that I've commanded. And we look at Jesus saying everything and we say, okay, Only the actual words that Jesus spoke, that's what he means by everything. But everything else in the Bible that Jesus didn't actually spit, then I don't have to obey that. Because we don't understand that every word in the Bible is from Jesus. Joshua says to be careful, to be diligently careful to do everything that God has said. Every word. That's what Paul does. He just takes them right back to these simple words of instituting the Lord's Supper that Jesus spoke and says to this horrific, decimated mess of a hurricane in the Corinthian church, it just simply says, let's just do what Jesus says. <laughs> let's just go back to his authority. I got nothing else for you. So let's, that's what we want to be as a church. We're going to mess this up. We sang it, we're gonna until the day we die struggle with rebellious hearts against authority. But we're gonna try our best, by God's grace, to just simply continually go back to what Jesus says. But so what does Jesus actually say? Well, it's very simple. The night when he's betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let me talk about this new covenant language here. This cup is the new covenant. New. New, of course, means that there was an old. Old in relation to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. A covenant is a treaty of sorts between two parties. This covenant is a unilateral treaty. It's not bilateral. It's not two parties coming to an agreement on the terms. It's one party who's done all the saving because he's God telling you the terms and bringing you into an eternally saving covenantal relationship of love with him because he rescued you from sin and death and Satan and hell. And then he says, these are my terms. Here it is. And, and the covenant is, I, your maker, am your God and your savior, your rock and your refuge, your provider, your governor, the Lord over all things. And I command you to obey me. By faith. And these covenants, whether it's old or new, are always instituted by God giving us signs and seals to remember them. In the old covenant. What what were the sacraments? What were these signs and seals to remember what God did in delivering? Israel from Egypt. What did he give as ongoing signs of God's saving work? To remember the covenant. What what were they? Circumcision and the Passover meal. Circumcision was a bloody entrance, a sign of entrance into the covenant. It was bloody. And then the meal, the Passover meal was a Sign of ongoing participation that marked God's people as his people, his unique people, and of fellowship with him. But now there's a new covenant. Those old covenant signs are gone. We no longer are required to circumcise. We no longer need a Passover celebration. There's a, a new covenant. Each covenant has a head. Who is the head of the old covenant? Moses, where's Moses? Moses, anybody seen Moses lately? He's dead, he's in a grave. <laughs> the head of the covenant died. At the end of Deuteronomy, it says that one like Moses is coming. And At the end of Deuteronomy, it says he's not here yet, we're still waiting. Well, a new Moses has come name is Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7.22, it says that he is the head of a new and far better covenant. What's better about the new covenant? Well, the head of it isn't dead. He did die, but he rose and he reigns, ascended, ruling over all things. And also, Moses... Couldn't die for the sins of his people. They had to sacrifice animals again and again and again. That was part of the Passover. He had to sacrifice a lamb. Every year, over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it couldn't really deal with the sins of his people. So Christ, the head of the covenant, is also the sacrifice of the covenant. That's what's new about it. And so then, the old is gone. It's obsolete in Hebrews 8.13. And we have new covenant signs. Baptism replaces circumcision. When one becomes a Christian or when a child who has grown up in a Christian home repents and believes in his or her sin, we're baptized. Circumcision was a bloody sign. Baptism is a bloodless washing sign. Why? Why? because Christ's blood has been shed once for all. The Lord's Supper, then, is the new sign that Christ instituted during the Passover, replacing the Passover as an ongoing reminder of fellowship with God, of being nourished and strengthened on Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives this very simple covenant sign of the Lord's Supper, His body is represented by the bread. The bread is not his body. It's a sign signifying that Christ has a body and that it was sacrificed. That's what the broken bread signifies. It doesn't signify broken bones. It signifies sacrifice. And when you hold the bread you're holding a symbol signifying this reality that the eternal god took on flesh and in his flesh he suffered for us for our sins he is the sacrifice likewise you hold a cup with drink that cup is a symbol signifying the blood of the savior it isn't the blood It is a symbol signifying that Jesus Christ shed his blood. And in Matthew it says, For the forgiveness of our sins. And as we partake of those simple elements, simple bread and a simple cup as we partake of them, we are somehow, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 10, participating with Jesus we're in union with him. We're fellowshipping with him. We're one with him. We draw near to him as he draws near to us. Paul says that he received this from the Lord. And that we're to do it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of him. To remind us. And this reminder is more than just like playing Memory. It's a spiritual, nourishing reality that God is our God. We are not what we were. And we belong to Him. And that His Son is our eternal Savior. And that this is real. Don't you need that? You ever doubt that this is all real? I do. You ever doubt that there is a God who took on flesh and died in my place for my sins? You ever just shake your head at that and go, the Lord's Supper is meant to confirm it. It's meant to make it more solid in your brain because we're human. We need physical things. This is the most difficult reality about being a Christian. You know what the most difficult reality about being a Christian is? He's not here. We don't see him. We can't touch him but you can hold bread and you can hold a cup and God there by his spirit is spiritually signifying to you that this is real. You taste it, you touch it, you smell it, you participate in it, you take of it. Well, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? Just simply say again, the authority behind this is Jesus himself. He instituted it, He did it all. And let's not forget that Paul notes here that he did it on the night when he was betrayed. I brought this up before, and it, it's really a, a, a helpful thought for me. It, it invigorates me to think this is the last thing that he did. Of all the things that he could have done, the one thing he did right before Judas betrayed him was institute the Lord's Supper as a perpetual ongoing sign and symbol of his sacrifice for us. And then he said, do this. Do this. Jesus did the first Lord's Supper. They're in three of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 and in Luke chapter 22. They record Jesus sitting with his disciples, separate from the Passover. During the Passover, he, he did this separate thing that wasn't done during the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper. and he did it for us. You note that? This is my body, which is for you. Whenever I am doing the Lord's Supper and I read those words, it does something to me. You might notice I emphasize it when I say it. This is my body, which is for you. Why did the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, take on a body. Why was he born of a virgin? Why did he go through all that? Why did he become flesh and bone? Why? For us. For you. So that he could spend it for you. That he could lose it for you. So that he could have a body which would take your and my sin upon himself and suffer the shame and the embarrassment and the ridicule and the pain and the awful torture of dying, paying the penalty of the wrath of God for our sins. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are bringing that to heart and to mind. The supper isn't a continuing sacrifice. Jesus isn't re-sacrificed every time we take the Lord's Supper. That's an a, uh, an error. He was sacrificed once for all. But he gives us this very simple means of drawing near to him to be nourished in faith and strengthened in heart, again, that this is true and this is real and we need it like we need bread, like we need drink. It is meant for you to know the love of God for you. Because you doubt that, right? You don't doubt that God is love. You don't doubt that God loves us. You doubt that God loves you. And you have to hold the bread and you have to hold the cup and you have to eat the bread and you have to drink the cup and God is trying to get it through your thick skull that he is for you. That he is for you. That he's not just a generally loving God. He's a father who knows you. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He sent his son to die for you. It's why it's a personal thing. We don't have a priest up here taking it for you all. We have a pastor and elders who bring the elements to you so that you can participate with Christ yourself and hear again that the God in heaven, your creator, Lord over all, Loves you intimately. That's why it's called the Lord's Supper. We sang it. You were an enemy of God. And how do you know when an enemy is reconciled? How do you know when you're reconciled to your enemy? You're not just friendly, you're beyond friendly. How do you know when you're truly reconciled to somebody that you were once? at odds with, when you can sit down to a meal. When they welcome you to dinner. This is what God has done for us in Christ. The reconciliation between you and God is so complete that you're His family and He invites you to His table. He has provided the means of the meal in his son he's provided the bread and the drink to nourish you the reconciliation between god and his people is so deep and so complete that we are regularly welcomed to his table how dare you not take part in it how dare we say i'm just not good enough for his table As believers. So many times Christians think themselves too bad or done too much the past week to not come to the table that the Father in heaven has set before us. Of course we're not worthy. (laughs) If only the worthy could take part in the supper, none of us should take part in it. I don't forget the parable Jesus told of the man who the rich man who put together this great banquet and he went invited all of the, the the good people, the wealthy people, they were all too busy. And so then who did he go invite? The poor and the homeless and the vagabonds and the smelly and the flannel wearers. those with dirty hands. He invited you. The only time you as a confessing believer should not participate in the Lord's Supper is when an elder tells you that your sin is such that you shouldn't anymore. When you've been disciplined by the church. No Christian is given the authority to self-discipline at the Lord's Supper. You know that? Nowhere in the Bible has the authority been given to an individual believer to discipline themselves and remove themselves from the table the Father has set. If you have such sin in your life that you shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper, then you should be coming to the elders. Or if you know in your spouse or in your child or in another member such grievous sin that they are taking the Lord's Supper in such an unworthy manner that it should be made known to the elders. That's what we're for. Otherwise, we come in faith that Christ is a sufficient Savior. And this is one of the very unique things about the Lord's Supper. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. We see in in the church in Corinth such disunity Such disunity. And yet, the, the Lord's Supper is a, a unifying meal. It's to show our oneness. Our, we're one body. We're a family, right? And yet, when you take the Lord's Supper, it's showing our division from the world. Every sign of the covenant, baptism, of the Lord's Supper, is meant to show division, separation. It's meant to mark you off. It is meant to declare that you have an allegiance above all other allegiances, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so sometimes, some of you might come here with a spouse who isn't a believer. And right there, as you take and he or she doesn't take, you are showing a division. You are showing that you have a more fundamental unity with Jesus Christ than you do with your spouse that God has made you one flesh with. You might see that with your children. It is meant to communicate to unbelievers this division That God is a judge and that all will give an account to him. So the Lord's Supper is a, a judgment as well. You have to make a judgment. We have to make judgments. Unbelievers are not welcome to the Lord's Supper. That's why in the history of the church, often, and it still happens, that they had a separate communion service after the regular service. And they would dismiss any who shouldn't take of the Lord's Supper. I believe in the O'Malley's or in Ireland, they did that still. It still happens. It's because they took it so serious. It's such a dividing meal. Only God's family is welcome. And so, it is, as we often say in baptism, giving outward to the inward. And our salvation is an inward spiritual reality. But the external visible is, Taking the Lord's Supper, it's baptism. This is why Jesus says, you can't love me if you don't hate your mother, brother, family, even your own life. So how do we take it? How do we take this meal? Well, we just take it by faith. It's not magical or mechanical. That is, just taking the meal isn't the thing taking it by faith. It's taking it by considering what Jesus has done. It's taking it considering all the promises that God has given us and that you take it and go yes. This is true. This is right. This is real. We believe God's promises by faith. Even if it's a weak, small faith. It's Abraham receiving this promise from God in his decrepit old age when his wife and he are way past childbearing and his wife has been barren anyways, and yet God in heaven comes to him and says, this time next year you're going to have a son. (laughs) It's a promise. And this son is going to bring blessings to all nations on the earth. Abraham can barely get out of bed in the morning, much less procreate. And what does Abraham do to God? Yep, all right. That's it. It's Mary. Before marriage, a virgin, the Holy Spirit coming to her, an angel coming to her and saying, you're going to conceive and the child within you is going to be from God himself by the Spirit. (laughs) And, and the son that's going to be in your womb is, the, is God. He's the promised Messiah. He's going to save God's people from their sins. <laughs> what does Mary do? Let it, it be to me as you said. Alright. Believe it. And that's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We are reminded of all of these great promises of God, that his spirit dwells within you and that your sin will not keep you from heaven, but God will bring you there and you will join with billions of saints from all over the world of all time for, forever with him in a new, recreated earth. And you go, yeah, right. You know, it's true. It's true. This is what we're taking in the Lord's Supper. It's true. And Jesus said in Mark twenty-two fifteen, I have earnestly desired to take this meal with you. And that's what he's saying every time we take this. I earnestly desire this meal with you, and I earnestly desire this meal with you in the new heavens. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Bible doesn't specify how frequently we should take this meal. It just says as often as you drink it. We do it monthly. We're okay with that, I think. I think we as elders would never want to do it less than that. We'd be willing to do it more than that if you all thought it was good. But when we do it, we are doing it with the Savior who is eager to do it with us. And somehow, as we take this meal, everybody becomes the preacher. Isn't that wild? For as often as you, or in the King James, as often as ye, singular. It's one of the good things about the King James. It differentiates between the singular you and the plural you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you become a preacher. You preach the Lord's death until he comes. You're herald. You're saying something. And what are you saying? You're saying Jesus died for me. Isn't that amazing? You're a preacher. And when you eat and drink of the cup, you become a much more eloquent one than I. The sermon you preach every first Sunday of the month is the best sermon that ever gets preached in this church over and over and over again. Who are you saying that to? Who are you preaching this sermon to? Well, to yourself. But as Keith said, we're singing to each other. We're preaching to each other. You are proclaiming the Lord's death to the people seated around you, to your spouse, to your children, to the other members of this church. You are proclaiming Jesus died for you. He is your Savior, His blood is sufficient. And then we're proclaiming to unbelievers you get to do that. What a privilege, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. It is hard to feel the worth that he is and for what he's done and yet he has done it. We give you thanks for it. We thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would help us to take it by faith when we do take of it. That we would look forward to it eagerly and then taking it, looking forward even more to the day of no longer needing faith, but seeing him who died for us and yet lives. A place where there is no more death and there is no more sin. We get to join with all of your people. And so until that day, strengthen us, O God. Nourish our faith as we take the Lord's Supper and teach us to do it in a manner uh, worthy of it. I give you glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this, the Lord's Supper is a time for like, real gratitude, high gratitude because of Christ and the welcome of God to his table. The kind of gratitude the Lord's Supper should encourage us is meant to spill out into all of life. Right? When you're at a good feast and you have a lot of fun, it affects the rest of your life. That's what it's meant. So the charge is to be more grateful to God for all things. Figure out the little things and give him Uh, More thanks this week and then in the past. Now may the God of peace who brought again uh, from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.